Let's do this. Would you stand in reverence to reading of God's Word? Hosea chapter 5. Uh, what we're going to be doing today is uh, we're going to be preaching Hosea, and then next week we have the children's uh, musical, and then the week after we'll, we'll, we'll have a Christmas message, um, and then we also have a Christmas Eve service. And so, uh, But today we're going to kind of uh, cap off, and we'll take a little break, uh, kind of get into the Christmas season. Uh, but we'll kind of, we'll, we'll go with Hosea chapter 5 today. Hosea chapter 5, if you take your copy of God's Word, um, the title of the message is He Knows. It's celebrating, it's talking about the uh, omniscience of God, the all-knowing of God. Now, if you recall in chapter 4, don't worry, I'm not preaching a sermon before I read it, just so you have a context. Remember, the divine courtroom, there was like kind of a, a courtroom happening in chapter 4. It extends to chapter 5. So he's the divine judge, but here's a unique thing. He knows all. He's not like Judge Judy. Judge Judy knows a lot when you come into her courtroom, but she doesn't know everything. He's totally different. Yahweh knows everything. So let's take a look at this copy of God's word. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read the text, Hosea chapter 5, verse 1. He says, hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of our king. For the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. The revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim. And Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim, and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall trim, stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they go up to seek the Lord. But they will not find him, for he is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah and sound the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolate in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I will make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmarks. Upon them I pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment. Because he has determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah, his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wounds. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue I'll return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. I just want to ask for the Lord to help us. Lord, will you help? Will you help us in this passage of Scripture? God, my words and thoughts as we take your word, understand what it's saying to the original readers and make application today. Uh, as, as what you have for us in this word, how it is here for us. It is to help us to, to know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right, that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work, that we can be effective and efficient disciple makers. So help us in this and we'll praise you. And God's people said, amen. Thank you. Now, if you're wondering, as you read this chapter five and you're like, Nick, I have no idea what we just read. Please just hang with me. I'm going to try to help you with that. I, I would encourage you if you're, you're missing some of these messages in Hosea or the you, you kind of listen to the messages before. So if you have a Sunday that you can't make it, then, man, please get these messages because it's essential and kind of builds on itself. First, I just want to talk about this just to kind of start off. The title of the message is He Knows. And, and here's the thing. God is omniscient. That word omniscient means all-knowing. He knows all. Okay, now that may not be a watershed kind of idea, but we don't know all. This is how God, one of the ways God is completely different from us. We think we know all, but we don't know all. Okay, does anybody think they know all sometimes? Come on. You you know what even I, I discover even in our current culture? We think we know all, but a lot of times we think we know all even with our feelings. Okay, I've, 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 
And, and by the way, God gives us feelings. He gives us emotions. Um, what I've told people over and over and over is that feelings don't drive our life. Feelings are in response to what God has told us to do. Okay, so obey God. Our feelings will spiral up. Disobey God. Feelings will spiral down. But in the end, here's what our current culture does. It takes feelings and let feelings drive every single thing in life, right? Now, here's the thing. I don't know if our culture, and sometimes our culture, I think, is seeping into us, God's people, is that we sometimes think our feelings are the best indicator of what truth really is, okay? Are y'all with me on that? Do you understand? Like, we, we can even, I've even heard this many times. I know what God's word says, Nick, but this is how I feel, okay? So, just so you know, we are not omniscient. We are not all-knowing. We, we don't have it all together. We can't trust everything that we think, every feeling, every, every kind of gut check. So I, I have sometimes where we kind of think to ourselves like, I, I just have a gut check on this and I know we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We are fallen. We, we make mistakes all the time. We don't have a perfect view of everything. But you know what I love about our Lord? Never happens with him. He is omniscient. He knows all. He never makes a mistake, never makes a wrong angle, never looks at things from a bad perspective. His perspective is always correct. He's completely holy and other different from us. Now, when we look at chapter 5 of Hosea, hold in this idea of this is a God who is omniscient. He knows exactly what's going on, and he is not fooled. Even though in our text, Israel has fooled themselves. We can fool ourselves. How depraved are we where... Sometimes we fool ourselves into even thinking our sin is righteousness. We we do that all the time. We fool ourselves. God's not fooled in this. He knows exactly what's going on. And as we continue on with this text, we're still in kind of the divine courtroom. In this divine courtroom, we get this idea that that Yahweh knows. God knows. The, The great I am, Yahweh, he knows exactly what's going on. Do this. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. And, and by the way, if, uh, on your, at the very end of your, um, what are these things called that you sit on? Chairs, aisle, right? What you want to do is uh, there's notes and there's an outline of the notes uh, on the back. So if you haven't, if someone hasn't passed that down, pass that down. And I kind of, you can kind of follow along with me if you want to follow. But the first point on your outline uh, is number one, he knows who's responsible. So just so you remember, Israel has gotten into sin they have worshipped idols. They have strayed from the Lord. They're not following the law of Moses. They're doing the opposite of what God had told them to do. The first thing the omniscient God tells them in this text is that he knows who is responsible for their moral decay. He knows. Look in verse number 1. He says, Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. I want you to notice something in verse 1. Who are the first people that he names out as responsible. The priest. Y'all remember that from chapter 4? The priest. The spiritual leaders. He holds them first accountable. This is very convicting for me. Not only because the Lord has me in spiritual leadership. But also for God's people. Because the New Testament. What does he call God's people in the New Testament? We are what of God? Priests of God. First Peter 2.9. For you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How convicting is this? The omniscient God knows who is responsible. And he holds the priests. He holds the spiritual leaders. He holds those people accountable first. You know, a lot of times people say our nation, um, the direction of our nation is really dependent on who kind of gets in political leadership. And, And there's a modicum of truth to that. But I have to say, I think the direction of our country really rests a lot on what are the priests of our nation doing? What are we as God's people? What are spiritual leaders doing? So he says, I know who's responsible. You priests. Now, by the way, it, it descends down from there. So he says, pay attention, O house of Israel. So the greater, the, the kingdom of Israel, and give ear, O king. So he's not letting everybody off the hook, but, but I find it interesting. He starts with the priest and says something to them. By the way, who is responsible for their moral decay? By the way, just a side note. Um, this last week, um, we went and visited family, right? And we were at my dad's house and uh, Cadence. Here's the thing. Kids are so funny. Um, you know, and so 
when when we're in the house, uh, Cadence says to me and says, Daddy, you're the prince. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, I'm the prince. And then she points to my dad and says, he's the king, right? And, you know, and, and I was like, yeah, 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 he's, he's the king, I'm the prince, he's my dad, I'm his son, you know, kind of, you don't understand kind of the, the, the illustration. Now, as I was studying this text, though, that day, I kind of thought to myself, oh, what's interesting. In this text, although the text is talking about the king of, of Israel at the time, but just a great application. Although the priests were responsible, the house of Israel, I, I get it. But also, he says, give ear, O house of the king. The, the king of Israel had a profound influence on them on their spiritual direction. But, but even in that little time where my little daughter says, you're the prince, he's the king. I just got this idea in that moment of like, you know, Lord, the, the leadership in a home has such a profound impact. Like, it's interesting that my kid, it is even pointing like, hey, you know, Dad, what you are today has a profound impact from your dad's impact on you. And, and so, like, someday the prince becomes the king, and, like, what I do has a profound impact. It, so just the Lord is omniscience, knows who's responsible, the spiritual leaders. But I can even say this. In our own homes, like men, fathers, husbands, there's a profound, like, he knows who's responsible. Like, if when there comes to accountability for the direction of the home, I mean, let's not let off this idea that, what happens with the men in our homes actually has a profound impact on the direction of the family. In fact, even when I do marriage counseling, you know, everybody says marriage is 50-50. I kind of look at it as, as more of like a 75-25 where both are accountable before the Lord. But, man, you really find in the scriptures the Lord hammers down on male responsibility. And when that leadership has gone kind of wonky in the home, it really seems like he puts a heavier burden on the men and kind of the direction of which they've led the home. In this text, though, what I love is this. The omniscience of God is not fooled by anything. So if a husband were to say, yeah, the, the direction of our home, you, you know, you just understand, you know, the excuses that he may make, like the Lord in his omniscience would go like, no, actually I hold you responsible. And when there's a direction that a church is going that's not right, it's not one of these things where like, well, it's, this is just unfortunate. No, the Lord in his omniscience says, no, I know who is responsible. No one can lie to the omniscient God. I love that he starts this off pointing to the people where the Lord in his omniscience says, I know, I know who's responsible for the direction. Priests, people of Israel, O king, And only that, number two, on your outline, he knows what they've been doing, his omniscience. Look in verse one. For the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare in Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. So a snare and a net are basically traps that you would capture a bird, okay? And what he's basically saying is from from kind of like the west and east of the Jordan River, Mizpah and Tabor... Basically, this is how far you've spread your kind of idolatry. This is how far sin has spread. What we find is the omniscient God knows exactly what they've been doing. He's not fooled by anything. He says, I know how far you've spread. I know exactly what you've done. Look in verse 2. And the revolters have gone into deep slaughter, but I will discipline them all. That word revolters, it's, it's this idea of someone who's rebelling against authority. I think he's primarily hitting at the priest and then by extension, everybody else. He, he's saying in verse two, I know what you've been doing. In fact, I know how you've been going into slaughter. You've been leading these people astray and, and I've been disciplining you, but, but I'm not done with this. I'm going to discipline everybody for this. Verse three, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. So the Lord says in his omniscience, I know exactly, like, nothing you're doing is hidden from, hidden from me. I know exactly what's going on. You can't lie. You can't twist. Like, I know exactly the sins that you've been getting into that is going to lead you into Assyrian exile. Oh, Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. He knows. So they've been acting like Gomer and lying to themselves that they have been acting like Gomer. But yet the Lord in his omniscience, he knows it. Now, what's interesting? Um, do you ever notice that we can fool people? And, and by the way, I'm, I'm sure that none of us have ever done that. But have you ever told a lie to somebody, right? Now, listen, I know this has never happened in any of our lives, right? Okay, so this illustration is probably just for me. Have you ever told a lie to somebody knowing that they would just believe that lie, right? And, and when I say that lie, you just twisted it a little bit just to kind of make it, Make it seem just, a, y'all know nothing about this, right? We know nothing about this. You're, okay. 
You ever notice we, we're able to, this is the deceitfulness of our sin. How many times have we ever just twisted small things and we just knew people would buy into it? Like, for instance, here's the easy one. Um, you know, you're about 20 minutes from being somewhere, but you tell a person like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'll be there in five minutes, right? Although you know you're not going to be there in five minutes. It just sounds really better to say five minutes, and you kind of know they're not going to be looking at the clock. So in their mind, and you kind of justified it, that you've just really been about five minutes late. You, you understand what I'm talking about, right? Okay. But God's not fooled by that at all. Sometimes we've lied so much to people because we know they're not omniscient, but that's not how the Lord works. Like in this, he's telling them, like, listen, I know exactly what you've been doing. In verse 3, nothing is hidden from me. Now, just so you know, he says, I know Ephraim and Israel. Sometimes in this text, you'll see, instead of saying Israel, the northern kingdom, he says Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, but very influential tribe. And many times he just uses Ephraim to describe the whole kingdom of Israel. Okay? But he says to them, Israel, Ephraim, I know what you've been up to. Nothing is hidden from my omniscient eyes. Now, you may think to yourself, like, okay, great. God's omniscient. He knows everything. I don't think sometimes we really grasp that. If we really would grasp that, it would change everything. And and here's how I know. Have you ever gotten into sin? Which, once again, none of us know about that, right? Have you ever gotten into sin and then someone, like, someone either came into the room or someone, um, basically a live person basically came into the situation and then all of a sudden you got really accountable, right? Like it could have been twisting the details a lot, whatever. I mean, like a live person kind of came in, like because you knew at that moment someone had knowledge, like a real person had knowledge and you were kind of hiding this. Now, what's interesting is this. When we know as God is omniscient, we also know that he is always present. Like, He's more than just a Santa Claus that's been watching you, you've been naughty or nice. There is nothing that escapes his all-knowing eye. And that actually changes things. When we actually know he's omniscient, we know that everything we do, he's actually observant of it. And even when we make things up in our mind to kind of go like, yeah, like, like my sin's not as bad. Like, he's not fooled at all by it. So in the text, we find that they... They think that they've put one over on Yahweh, but he knows what they're doing. And number three on your outline. Not, so he knows who's responsible. He knows what they've been doing. He knows why they will not repent. Verse four. I find this interesting in verse four. Are y'all still with me? Are you okay? Okay. Don't y'all love the book of Hosea? All right. Love it. Great book. Look at verse four. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Interesting. Wouldn't you think to yourself, wait a minute, I thought you could repent of sin, but why does God's word say their deeds do not permit them to return to God? Are they committing some sin that they can't come back from? Why does it say that their deeds will not permit them to return to God? Like God knows in this text why they will not repent. Well, here's the reason. Here's what they were doing. They would not return to God because they would walk in their sin and at the same time try to worship Yahweh at the same time. And then they would try to mix Yahweh. They basically built these idols, these, these calf idols, and would go, these are the ones that delivered you from Egypt. So basically, they're, they're trying to attribute some things to Yahweh, but then worshiping the way they want to. And, and in the end, it's just a corrosion. Now, here's what happens. Here's what we think sometimes, too, is the reason their deeds do not permit them to return to God, the Lord, and the Lord knows why. The Lord knows why they won't repent. It's because oftentimes what a person, what we try to do is we try to mix sin and we try to mix the Lord. We try to worship something false, then something real. And Jesus said this, you cannot worship God. You cannot worship me and money, right? Basically, the Lord tells us you can't have two masters. You can't have two gods. You will love one and what we do with the other. You'll hate it. So why were they not able to repent? Well, one of the reasons was this. When they tried to stop sinning, they actually just tried to add Yahweh in to a part of their sin. And actually, God doesn't work that way. One thing that God is in the scriptures, his character is he's jealous. Now, sometimes we see jealousy as something that's always evil and sinful, but actually there's a righteous type of jealousy. Like God is righteously jealous to be worshipped exclusively. 
What they were trying to do was mix God in with their sin. They were trying to, this is why it says their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Because they were trying to bring God in as a part of their sin. They were, still, they were still going and doing their worship that actually involved a lot of cult prostitution. And then they were trying to bring Yahweh into that and kind of go like, hey, this is okay. Let's, let's kind of create a buffet line with God and, and we'll just worship God any way we want to. And he'll just kind of add in. And here's what you find. Repentance really doesn't happen in our life. Even our life now, when we try to mix God in with our sin, when we try to go, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to put God in my life, but I'm going to actually like maneuver my belief about the omniscient God that he agrees with what my sin is. Are you with me on that? Like, this is what they're doing. And when that happens, it's really hard. It's really hard. Ever done that ourselves? Continued in sin and tried to add Jesus on the side? And I can tell you from personal experience, anytime I've ever walked in sin and tried to add Jesus on the side, in the end, I don't repent. In the end, I don't. Because you can't, you can't serve two masters. You, I can only serve one master. There's only the capacity in us to serve one. Now, what's interesting is the omniscient God, he's not fooled by any of this. Look in verse 4. For the spirit of whoredom is upon them, and they know not their Lord. So he, he knows why they will not repent, not only because they will not drop their sin and worship him exclusively, but also there's this spirit of whoredom that is upon them. Now, I, I'm not really, when I see the spirit of whoredom in the text, I'm, I'm, don't kind of run out of here and go like there's a particular demon that's, that's, that's controlling them. I, I really think what's going on with the spirit of whoredom is they have so been bent and broken by rebelling against God. They have so wandered far and far from it, it has become a bondage, a stranglehold on their life. Sin will cost us more than we, will take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we're willing to stay, and cost us more than we're willing to pay. This is what sin had done, this spirit of whoredom. They had gotten into this sin so much that, so much, remember, remember you have, you have Gomer and Hosea? You remember, like you can ever wonder like, how in the world did, did, did Hosea marry Gomer? Like, because there was a lot of Gomers. There was a lot of Gomers. It had become kind of a common thing. This spirit of whoredom was all over them. They had, they had mixed cultic prostitution as a part of their worship. This spirit of whoredom was so permeating in their whole entire culture, it took over everything they had done. They had done it so much and rebelled so much that it just became normal. Have you ever noticed that even in our culture, certain types of sinning that even in the Christian church, we kind of adopt as okay at some point. Like, like the culture kind of does this to us sometimes. They try to normalize it so much that, that we start to try to normalize it so much. Y'all hang on with me. Do you understand that, that, how that kind of happens? Well, the omniscient God knows about it. He knows why they will not repent. The spirit of whoredom is upon them. They want their sin and God at the same time. That's why their deeds will not let go of them. They won't repent. But also, look at the end of verse 4 that they do not know the Lord. Remember in chapter 4, it says one of the reasons they were, uh, one of the judgments on them, one of the the reasons they were sinning is because they didn't know the Lord, thus they didn't have a love for God, and thus they weren't faithful to God in chapter 4. Well, they do not know the Lord. The priests weren't preaching God's word. They were not teaching God's word to God's people. People were not in environments where they knew the true character of God, and thus they were getting into more error. So he knows who's responsible. He knows what they've been doing. He knows why they will not repent. But not only that, look in verse 5. So we see that they don't have a knowledge of God. And, and just a side note, once again, I know this seems like a broken record. But this book, I have never, ever, ever known someone who grew in the Lord, who knew God's character, who did not know this word. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, like, it's not going to happen. I mean, we can keep fumbling around, but until we know this word, and I say know this word, I'm not talking just the intellectual pursuit of this word. I'm talking about you intellectually pursue this word and this, and it has more than an intellectual effect. It has an applicational effect. This is actually what starts to change us. And so one of the reasons they wouldn't repent is that they did not know God. They know God's word. The priests weren't preaching it. They weren't reading it. It wasn't being read. It wasn't a part of their life. It didn't permeate their thinking. Even, by the way, we do this in our current kind of conservative Christian culture. I'll tell you how. Um, For those of us that are savvy and for those of us that kind of like want to kind of know about life, you know what we often do now? Instead of 
like issue comes up in our life, instead of running to the word, a lot of times we just try to Google a solution, right? I got this problem with somebody, what should I do, right? What do we, we Google it a lot of times, right? Or we'll run to the many self-help books that are out there, which actually a lot of times just mix a lot of secular psychology. It, it, it happens a lot. Instead of actually running to God's word, running God's word. So we find this, they, they don't know God's word. They want to share their sin with God, they, and they're not able to do that kind of thing. And then look at number five. These are reasons they won't repent, and God knows it. Look at number five. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Do you know the reason they won't repent and God knows it? It's because of their pride. It's just their pride. Pride is what resulted in Satan's fall. Pride is resulted in Adam and Eve's fall. Pride is still why we sin today. When you take the heart of where sin comes from, when you get to like the core of it, it's pride. It's a self-exaltation against God. By the way, here's what's awesome about Jesus. He's the opposite of pride. He's humility, right? You know what, what keeps us sinning more and more? It's pride. What actually causes us to run from sin or run to God? It's humility. And by the way, let me just give you an example of how this manifests. Pride is this idea that we're so embarrassed by our sin that we don't want to confess it to God. We're so embarrassed by our sin that we don't want to confess it to brothers and sisters and be, and be accountable to them. And here's the danger of pride. Look in the text. He says, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall what? Stumble in his what? You know what happens? When that pride kind of sets in, right? We won't confess it to God. We won't confess it to people. The way, when, we have, when we have sinned against somebody, we won't confess it to them. And, and, and here's the pride of our heart sometimes. We'll only confess to somebody else if they admit their sin before us, right? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll admit to them when they admit to me, right? But that's still pride. That's still pride. Like, actually, humility is, I, it'd be great if you did confess your sin to me, but I don't need that. Like, I, like, he's enough. I can confess my own sin, regardless of what you do or not. But pride would keep you from that. Pride would keep you from guarding. In fact, here's what happens sometimes. We won't confess our sin because we're afraid what everybody's going to think about us. Once again, what is that? Pride. So he says, I know. I know why you won't repent. It's your pride. It's your pride. And, and what happens is this. Anytime we haven't been confessing our sin to God and to others, we start to feel guilty. And in the text, it says when you're guilty, what do you do? Stumble. What do you do? Stumble. You stumble. You ever been trapped in sin, a sin habit and pattern in life, and it was just weighing you down, but pride kept you from confessing it to God and confessing it to others, and then what happens? You just keep stumbling in that sin. And what happens? That guilt just eats you alive, right? You know what's, what's really awesome? I, this is what I love about pastoral ministry. One of the things. Some things I don't like. Some things I do love. You know what I love is when someone has been struggling with sin for a long time and they finally, finally confess it to God and confess it to others. And then you see what freedom they start to live in. And, and, and I love it because I've, I've seen it so many times where someone just says, like, they knew that it was going to be bad initially. They knew when they confessed it. But, but eventually it's like that person just starts to say, like, man, I'm living free. This is awesome. Like, like, I'm, like life is totally different now. What's happening? They're not dealing with that guilt anymore. They're, they're not stumbling over in that anymore. So the Lord says, he's omniscient. He knows. He says, hey, I know why you're not repenting. It's your pride. You truly don't know me. You, you want to you wanna have your sin and have me, and you can't serve two masters at one time. So the omniscient God knows. And what's what I love? If, you're kinda, if we're kind of here today and we're kind of like, man, there's sin I'm struggling with in my own life. Well, guess what? He just told us why. <laughs> this is what I love. You don't have to go get a self-help book. You, you've got it the exact thing. He just told us actually what, how, why we're not repenting. That was for y'all, not me, because I don't sin. All right, number four. I stopped sinning when I became a follower at 16. All right, number four. <laughs> Verse, y'all know that's not true. You know how you know that? Just ask my kids. All right, that's how you, that's how you really know. Number four, he knows what is false worship. He knows what is false worship. So look at chapter five and verse six. So he says, with their flocks and herds, they go and seek the Lord, but they will not find him 
for he has withdrawn from them. That's interesting. Like, the Lord knows false. He's so omniscient, he knows when our worship is false. And, and one of the things they were doing here is they were still going and bringing sacrifices, right? But they weren't doing it to him. But they were bringing sacrifices. Like, they were bringing all the sacrifices in the world, but they loved their sin more than anything. And so God, remember, you've seen through the Old Testament where God says, I don't want your sacrifice, I want your heart. Like, that's what I actually want. He knows that their worship is false. And here's what's interesting. When they're holding on to their sin and then still trying to worship, and when they're bringing their sacrifices, they're loving those sacrifices more than they're loving him, he kind of says, not a part of it, not there with you. You know this, I've had people sometimes go, I've been worshiping God, and I feel like he's not even here, right? Well, sometimes he's not there because he doesn't hang out with false worship. Like, he doesn't. He doesn't hang out with worship that's kind of self-centered, not considering your own sin. And, and, and just in, I'm telling you, like, like, please listen to me on this. If you want to experience the presence of God, you must have a real understanding of your depravity. You must know it. Because the more you understand just how rotten you are, the more you're going to appreciate his grace, okay? You, you can't have grace without understanding your sin. You can't have grace without his holiness, okay? And so I, I even find this. The people in life that are the most forgiving, the ones that grow bitter and not better, I mean, these are the people that have an understanding of their own sin. I mean, they're still, they can see only the log in their own eye that they don't walk around seeing everybody else's log. And, and I'm telling you, if you're ever that person that, that you feel like you got a problem with everybody in life, the more than likely it's the fact that you've got a big log in your eye and that's, and, uh, and you got, you see only your sin is like this little splinter in your own eye and you see everybody else's sin is bigger than yours. So God knows this and he doesn't enter into that kind of worship. He, he isn't fooled by this. He's that omniscient. So he says, you bring in your hawks, your, 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 your flocks and your herds in verse six to seek me. I'm not there. I've withdrawn from you. Look in verse seven. They, they've dealt faithlessly with the Lord. He's not fooled. They thought they fooled Yahweh, but he's not fooled by that. They've even borne alien children. Now, this is not, don't, don't worry, there's no UFOs, okay? That, that's not what's happening here. He says alien children, what he's saying is this. Like, I've given you the law of Moses. I've given you statutes. I've given you rules to follow. And you've not taught them to your children. And your children are alien to me. So here's the deal. If mom and dad don't know God, high chance that what? Sons and daughters won't know God, right? Remember, remember Deuteronomy 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be put in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your what? Your children. You shall talk of them when they sit in the house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. So what were happening? Well, Mom and dad weren't worshiping the Lord, and thus the children weren't worshiping the Lord. And the Lord says to them, like, hey, I, I see this false worship. And, and, and like, you, you, the children that you have, they don't even know me. Like, they're alien children to me. They don't, they don't know anything about the one true God. And what's interesting here? False worship. Some people have said to me, I, I've had this, I've had people say, I'm trying to think how to say this. It's always good to think before you say something, right? There is no ironclad promise of if you do everything right as a parent that your kid's going to turn out a certain way. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. When parents are not being authentic before the Lord, looking at their own sin, worshiping at the foot of the cross, a kid sees that hypocrisy. Kids know it. And I think one of the times we see false worship, like you wonder, like, how can, how can this kid be raised up in church and sometimes go astray? Now, this isn't all the time. I'm just saying sometimes you see this. It's because actually the parents, I mean, their worship was like we checked in at a church. We might have checked in with a group. But there was no kind of relationship with the Lord that the kids ever observed. They never saw like mom and dad talking about the scriptures, praying, like extending themselves, trying to make disciples, trying to minister the gospel. They saw, saw no impact. And this false worship, even the kids can see it. Even so much that the, the Lord says, man, your kids are aliens to me. Like they, they don't even know me. They don't know about me. Because all this false worship that you parents have been spreading. Look in verse 7. The Lord knows this. He says, now the new moon shall devour them. In their fields. Now, if you were with us in the 
in the spring and you saw, um, we talked about some of the feasts of Israel. At the beginning of each month, they had the new moon feast and festival. And there was observance of this new moon. They were looking, this has kind of started their calendar. And part of this, there would be sacrifices, blowing of the trumpet. They'd stop from their labor. There'd be feasting. All these things that the Bible had told them to do every the beginning of each month with the new moon, right? Right? So here's the deal. The Lord knows, though, it's still false worship. I mean, they were going through all the motions that the law of Moses had told them to do with the new moon. And the Lord says, not there, not there. Going through the motions, but not there. See, here's the thing. He is so omniscient. He knows even when our worship is false. He sees right through it. This is what the divine judge is telling him. This is, this is something Judge Judy could never do. Like, he accurately diagnoses because he's that omniscient. So, one, he knows who's responsible. He knows what they've been doing. He knows it, why they will not repent. He knows what is false worship. And number five, and this blows my mind. Y'all still with me on this? You still with me? Y'all still awake? Y'all still? Okay. Man, you guys are doing so good this morning. I can just feel the, the spiritual energy. You're burning up every pound that came through Thanksgiving, right? You've, you've probably already lost two or three pounds just in what you've been kind of focusing in this morning, right? Didn't you know? Didn't you know worship loses weight, right? Didn't you know that? I'm sure there's something in the Bible about it. Okay. I was making that up, by the way. <laughs> You're like, really, there is? Like, like you lose weight when you worship? Well, I don't know. You're charismatic enough, maybe. All right, number five. <laughs> That's not in my notes. I should probably stick to my notes, right? <laughs> okay. Let's get back to it. Number five. This is interesting. So he made it known to them what would happen if they didn't repent. So he knows, he knows, he knows, right? We've got that. He's omniscient, he knows. (laughs) But then he made it known to them what would happen if they didn't repent. This is what I love. Not only is he omniscient, does he know all, but in his grace, he says, hey, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent. Haven't we seen this over and over? I mean, there's many books of the minor prophets we've already covered. We've still got several more, but over and over the message is, Hey, if you don't repent, this is what I'm going to do. People think like, oh, God in the Old Testament, he's such a mean, ogreish God. Really? I mean, how many times has he warned them? Has he told them? I mean, that's his grace. By the way, haven't we been told the same thing? Haven't we been told what happens if we don't worship the Lord? Haven't we been told of the judgment to come if we don't bow the knee to the Son of God? Haven't we been told that? He made, no, he made it known to them what would happen if they didn't repent. Man, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills when I read um, when I read the minor prophets and just see all that the Lord keeps telecasting and it doesn't permeate them. The all-knowing God gives a little bit of his knowledge, enough that they could repent, and it still doesn't change them. Look in verse 8. He says, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in Beth Haven. We follow you, O Benjamin. When you blow the horn or the trumpet or sound the alarm, it's kind of a, a war cry. It's a cry of saying like, hey, the enemy is attacking you. Everybody needs to be ready. So basically God was saying like, hey, just so you know, it's coming for you. It's coming for you. You're, and what's interesting, it, he's even talking about this from O Benjamin. Benjamin's actually part of the southern, and, but this is supposed to be judgment for the northern. It just kind of lets you know, man, how permeating this kind of judgment is. I mean, it, I mean, Judgment's pretty bad if, if, if another country is kind of telling you it's coming on you, right? By the way, it's going to become on Judah as well later on. Look in verse 9. I make known what is sure. What I love about God's omniscience. He shares a piece of it, and he shares enough that you can actually repent. This is what he, he shares enough. He warns them. Look at verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Just so you understand, one of the things that happened in Israel that was really damaging was people would try to move land boundaries. and when Because when you move land boundary, that gives you more what? Land. And if you've got more land, you can earn more money. You can have more power. One of the social injustices that were happening is that those who had resources were moving landmarks and then basically bribing judges and making putting people into poverty just so they could get more greedy. And the Lord says, I know all about what's happening Judah's been doing it. You're doing this. I will pour out my wrath like water. You know what's interesting about water? You ever had a water leak in your house? Okay. Remember back. You're probably going to get trauma from this, but 
Remember back when that leak started happening and you tried to contain it? Do you remember that? Remember getting out all those towels? Remember yelling at everybody like, come in here, get it, you know? And then you remember that water just decided to go everywhere it wanted to go. And you were powerless. I remember one time we had a water leak. It was right during the winter. And like when it started, I saw just a little tri- this little trickle, right? And all of a sudden it turned into more. We had towel after towel down. Do you think it stopped it? No way. It goes wherever it flows like water. This is what the Lord's telling them. In his omniscience, he's making it known what's actually going to happen. And they don't repent. How good and gracious he is to tell them, to warn them, to show them. Look in verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because I've determined to go after filth. He's like, I know exactly what you're doing. You've got no love for me. You've got no knowledge of God. You've got no faithfulness. Verse 12. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Now, a lot of us don't know about this, um, but we don't, a lot of us, I, I, I doubt many of us actually put moth balls in our closets, but it used to be a really big thing years ago because when, before they had central heat and air, like people, you know, people did something like, like, you know, like opened their windows, right? And, and they went on the front porch and a lot of flowing air came through the house and it wasn't uncommon for bugs to come in your house. It wasn't uncommon for a moth to come in your house. And, and back, back in the day, people didn't have a lot of synthetic fibers. It was usually like cotton and wool where most of the fibers we have now are synthetic, which, which kind of are, are bad for moth. And so we don't really struggle with moths in our closet anymore. But years ago, before air conditioning, before synthetic materials, like you could go to bed and if enough moths got in your closet, you could wake up the next morning and they destroyed your entire wardrobe, right? Which, you know, and that day was, was pretty bad. Not for us now because, we, you know, we've got more clothes in our closet than we even know what to do with, right? That, that's, that's why they had such small closets years ago because they just kind of had a couple things. But what happens is this. When a moth comes in, his judgment is immediate. So he's saying to Ephraim, the northern kingdom, hey, like a moth, like really quick, your judgment's coming. And it was about to come from Assyria. Like a dry rot to the house of Judah. A dry rot is kind of slower. He's saying, Judah, it's coming for you too, but it's a slower process. You're just kind of being dry rotted. What, what I find interesting is all this. The omniscient God is telecasting to them what's going to happen. So not only does he know, but he's making it known to them. Now let me ask you, did it change them? Didn't stop it, right? Look at verse 6. Here's what they did. He knows that Israel and Judah, instead of repenting and trusting him, they decide to trust Assyria instead. Interesting. Here's an interesting thought. Last week, when Jay talked about the fear of God, here's one of the things about the fear of God. When you really fear God, you trust him. When you don't fear God, you fear everybody else, right? And you trust people. So you know what Israel does here? They, instead of just repenting, the all-knowing God exposed their sin, told them what's going to happen. That it was in his goodness and gracious, he's trying to lead them to him. They reject him. They follow in their own sin. They rebel against him. They keep going their own direction. And instead of trusting him, instead of fearing God and trusting Yahweh, they instead try to fear Assyria and trust Assyria. He warns them about Assyria. And so <laughs> this, is, this is how depraved we are. In verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness, how do they see their sickness? The omniscient God had just warned them, had just been telling them, right? And then he says, crush, um, I'm sorry, uh, verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. So you know what we find over in uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, King Hosea of the northern kingdom, you know what he does? You get all these messages, and instead of trusting the Lord, instead of fearing him and trusting him and running to him, what does he do? Ah, I will checkmate God on this. I will figure out a way. I will, I will figure out a way him and call Uno, sink the battleship, and like I've tricked God. I'll trick him, and I'm just going to go to Assyria because I trust them. I'm going to make an alliance with Assyria, and now we're protected. Did it work? It didn't work. No, in the end, he also tried to make an alliance with Egypt, and in the end, he stopped... He stopped paying the tribute to Assyria, and it kind of led to their captivity. Here's what I find. He knows what Israel and Judah, um, he knows that Israel and Judah, instead of repenting and trusting him, they will trust Assyria. Here's what happens. When we truly don't fear the Lord, we trust other people. And when we trust other people, when we put our faith and hope in other people, 
we start going down bad paths. And this is exactly what Israel did. They tried to make bargains and political treaties with, with Assyria. Even the southern kingdom of Judah did the same thing. In the end, Assyria was not their refuge. They trusted Assyria, but Assyria turned on them. Verse 13, but he is not able to cure you or to heal your wound. Assyria was a bad savior. And by the way, you ever notice that we try to make people our saviors and not the true one good savior, right? So (laughs) he knows in his omniscience that instead of trusting him, they're actually going to trust Assyria. And number seven, he knows how to restore them. You know what I love about the minor prophets over and over and over and over and over? God says, repent, judgment, repent, judgment, repent, judgment. But then he always offers this redemption, this restoration, this hope, this, this kind of like, I'm still coming for you. Now, it, but it's never the way we like it. You remember in um, the Chronicles of Narnia when, when it's asked, what is Aslan like, right? You know, and, and they, you, you remember what I'm talking about, right? Where, where they say, um, is he safe, right? Is he safe? Like, no, he's not safe, but he's good. So I love, I love how we kind of close out chapter 5. Look what he says in verse 14. But I'll be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall escape. Now, you may be looking at this and going like, Nick, come on. How is he knows how to restore them? Where do you get that from this point in verse 7? You just, it just said a lion's going to come for Ephraim. And I don't know about you, but a lion is an apex predator. No one tells a lion, like a lion, when a lion comes in, a lion destroys, right? So you ever seen those YouTube clips of those people that try to jump into like the lion's cage and tries to do like the Daniel kind of thing? Like the lion, you should stop right there in the name of God, right? And what does that lion do? Yeah, the lion has lunch. Okay, that's exactly what happens. He's an apex predator. No one tells a lion what to do. A lion does what he's going to do. You can't stop him. He's dangerous. He says that this lion's coming for you, Ephraim, and a young lion for the house of Judah. Why would he say young lion? Because a young lion just kind of plays around, but you have a young lion. What's that young lion eventually going to become? A big lion, right? So someday that young lion's going to become big, and Judah's, the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, is going to go into judgment. For even I will tear away and go away. I will carry off and no one shall escape and rescue. Now you may be saying like, Nick, how is there any restoration in that verse? Why do we see that? We'll look at verse 15. And I will return again to my place as a lion until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. You know what I love is that when the Lord ends this passage, he basically says, I'm a lion, I'm coming for Israel. I'm going to tear you to pieces so that I can put you back together. Because you know what's interesting about this line? This line, Jesus, the, the true lion, is it like what he tears down, he can actually rebuild. What he judges, he can restore. And in his omniscience, in his all-knowingness, he knows that he's only going to be able to draw them back in if he, if he goes after their sin. If he, if he sends them into exile, there'll be a pathway for them to someday be restored. If he sends them into exile, there'll be a people that can someday bring about the Messiah, Jesus. Why is that? Because this is how the omniscient God knows. He knows how to restore. In verse 15, look at it. I'll return again to my place as the line until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, they will earnestly Seek me. The lion that destroyed them is the lion that can put them back together. This is, I mean, all the stuff you see right here, don't you see hope right here? Don't you see this hope of restoration? So if you're kind of like, man, if I repent and confess my sin, like, can the Lord ever bring restoration? Absolutely. He's the lion that knows how to restore. He has, he's omniscient enough to do this. His omniscience, is, his omniscience points the way that he has a plan for all of this. And what's his plan look like? His plan looks like his son. His son comes in and suffers the exile that our sins deserve. And this omniscient son, Jesus, is torn to pieces in our place so that we can someday be restored back to God. So when the lion comes to, to, to tear us down and to restore us, It can happen because Jesus has completed that process. And this is why I love to worship God. 
This is why I love to behold God. This is why I love to worship before his throne. This is why we're satisfied. And worship team, you can go ahead and come on up here. This is why he's worthy of looking at his character. This is why his omniscience is worthy of being played over and over in our life. This is why the character of God, his omniscience, his omnipotence, that's his all power. Um, like it's, it's worthy to be worshiped because when we look at his character, when we look at who he is, when we know that he knows, it changes everything about us. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Do we, do we see that in our soul? Do this. Would you stand to with me? And I want to sing a song with you called Behold Our God. And here's what I love about this song, Behold Our God. It, it's, it's not one of those kind of, you know, God is my best friend kind of songs. It's one of those songs that upholds the majesty and character of God. And Here's what I believe Israel never got a hold of. They truly didn't see this all-powerful character, this omniscient God. And when we fail to see that, when we fail to behold that, it wrecks our life. You know what sets a person on fire? is when they truly get a vision of what God's like, what his character is like. Right? He's, he's not like us. He is holy and other. Like he doesn't make mistakes. Everything he does is right. Every plan he puts into place is done with precision. Everything that he brings in our life is for a purpose. Like nothing is haphazard. Like some things I do in life, honestly, are haphazard. Some things I do in life, I don't have enough forethought. I don't have enough ability to look in the future to see everything, even as much as I even try as a human being. Never once has that happened with God. So, The fact today that Jesus is at the right hand of God, the fact that God is on the throne shows us that in his omniscience, he knows exactly what he's doing. In his omniscience, he knows how to draw us to repentance. In his omniscience, the pathway of repentance, we may feel like it's not the right path, but but he knows better. And what, what he's doing right now, so if you're here and you're like, man, I'll tell you something what the Lord's doing. The Lord has been busting me up about my sin. Like he has been tearing me down and it hurts. Yeah, that's what a lion does. But this lion also rebuilds. This lion restores. And that's the lion that's worthy to be worshiped. Do you believe it? Would you pray with me? What it is is a privilege to behold your face, to know that the wrath has been turned from us by the work of the Son. Thank you that you're on the throne. That from your throne, with with perfect knowledge, with perfect direction, with perfect guidance, with perfect instruction, you know and you've made known to us, and you're directing us today. May we submit to you. May we drop how we live by feelings. May we drop this idea of our own worldly wisdom. May we drop this idea of us being our own gods. May we drop all these thoughts that rebel against the true knowledge, the knowledge of the one true God. And may we be in awe of you once again. May we capture what the northern kingdom of Israel could see, but they couldn't see. Had ears, but they couldn't hear. Help us to walk in opposite ways. Let's worship him together.